0: This is The Memo, by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. Today, Howard reflects on It Is What It Is, which was originally published on March 27, 2006.
1: Here's Howard. I think it is what it is, is now heard all the time. It's in common use, and it's very helpful. The first time I ever heard it was 26 years ago when we were on the dawn of starting Oak Tree. Bruce Karsh and I, Sheldon Stone, Rich Masson, and Larry Keel would gather around and make our plans and start to flesh them out. And then in uh, February of uh, 95, we hired Peter Ostroff, an attorney from Sidley and Austin, to help us prepare the legal documents for Oak Tree. We told him about all the preparations we have been discussing, and we said, have we left anything out? Are we too late on anything? Is there anything we should have been doing? And he said, well, it is what it is. In other words, you've done what you've done, and you haven't done what you haven't done, and we're going to go on from here. When I was at Wharton, we were required to have a non-business minor and also to study one semester of the literature of a foreign country in English. For some reason, I can't remember, I picked Japan. Japan was not a, a factor in the business world at that time. It well predated Japan's economic recovery from the war. Anyway, in a course on Japanese philosophy, I came across the concept of Mujo, and Mujo Basically, uh, literally translated, according to our professor, the turning of the wheel of the law. And a little less literally, I took that to mean that the wheel, if you will, is always turning. Change is always underway. The current environment cannot be maintained by force. Neither can the future environment be determined by our efforts alone. The future environment will be what it will be based on the activities of everybody put together collectively. And no one person can change the environment. So what that means is, number one, because it's always changing, it's not going to stay the same. It's hard to predict. And what that means is that an investor has to expect change, albeit doesn't know exactly what change to expect and thus has to build a portfolio that has flexibility and can succeed in a variety of environments since no one can be accurately forecasted. And the investor has no choice but to accommodate to the current environment and to the most likely future environments and accept them and invest for them without insisting that he or she is able to predict the future and build the perfect portfolio for that one. I think that we can think about possible futures. We can certainly adjust our portfolios to the way they stand today. We're not helpless in our actions. It's just that we don't have the foresight or force to make the environment unidimensional, that is to say, to ensure that the future is going to be what we think it's going to be and act on that strong assumption. But I think we can still do things about the way things are now and the way we expect them to be. We just shouldn't be too confident in those expectations regarding the future. If you believe in Mujo, you believe that you can't control the future and you can't retain the present and that you must always be prepared for the changes that will occur to you and affect you. So I think that's a very important element of my thinking and Oak Tree's thinking. We have as one of the six tenets of our investment philosophy that our actions are not guided by macro forecasts. We don't have an economist. We don't invite economists in to speak. We don't, as far as I know, get a lot of economic services. Economics, which is a big part of the macro, it's something I've been receiving economic inputs for over 50 years, when I joined the bond department at Citibank in 1978, after nine years in equities, they said, go to the economics department, tie down what they think the outlook is. And so that was my first task in portfolio management. And I have to say that we always used to say that economists are portfolio managers who don't mark to market. That is to say they don't keep a scorecard. You've never had an economist come in and say, well, I'm here to brief you on what I think about the economic outlook. And by the way, my forecasts have been correct 35% of the time or anything like that. Nobody ever grades economists. They just go on to predict one future. And if they're not right, then they go on to predict a different future. But nobody ever says, well, I guess it's a waste of time to make predictions. The interesting thing about this Martian paragraph is that If you think about it, not a word that the Martian has said is a prediction. And yet, I think the Martian, the beauty of the Martian is that she does not profess to know the import of the things she observes. She's a blank sheet of paper without biases, not a pessimist, not an optimist, not greedy and not fearful. She just reports what she sees, and that's the thing. The rest of us come to this with biases, negative, positive, optimist, pessimist, scarred by history or lifted by history, and rarely do we see things objectively. If you take her observations, they're very full of meaning and full of recommendations, I would say. It's just a matter of what I've come to describe as taking the temperature of the market. These things are all behavioral and atmospheric. And environmental but they have implications for the future my recent book mastering the market cycle all it says is that what has happened to date and where things stand today influence the probability of where things are going tomorrow they don't determine the outcome you can't say that because the market is run by greed and confidence and optimism that it is by definition too high and it's going to start going down tomorrow but you can have a grasp for what it does to the probabilities. I think it's essential to think probabilistically about the future. The future is not knowable. The future doesn't even exist today. If the events of the future don't exist today, how can we say what they are or will be? The forces that shape the future are still in flux, and some of them are unknown. How they operate is not scientifically determinable, and We all know that uh, in science you can perform an experiment 10 times and can count on getting the same result if you understand the forces at work. Whereas in our business, you rarely get the same result because of the moving pieces, one of which is emotion and another one of which is randomness. Emotion contributes some of the randomness in the markets. So you must look at the future as a probability distribution. You must understand that There's a lot about it you don't understand. And you have to understand that even if you know the probability distribution perfectly, you still don't know what's going to happen. And uh, this is something that I got into more in my memos on risk. But the thing is, as long as the future has multiple possibilities, and that's always the case, you can't say you know which one of them will apply. You can say this one's most likely. You might even be right. But I think about outcomes as drawing balls from a bag in a lottery. You may know the composition of the balls in the bag. There may be uh, 80 black ones and 20 white ones. And your goal is to get a black one. So if somebody says, well, there's 80 black ones and 20 white ones, you say, well, I'm going to play this game. I'm willing to bet heavily on this game because my chance of getting a black one are four to one. You reach in the bag, you pull out a white one. Well, the person says, I never said there aren't any white ones. It's just that the black ones predominated, but you can still get a white one. And the greatest thing I ever heard anybody say about probabilities was on the Super Bowl morning five or six years ago. As I recall, it was Denver versus Carolina. And they had a former player on a TV show on Super Bowl morning. And they said to him, who do you think is going to win? This guy didn't go to Wharton. He was not a hedge fund manager. He wasn't pulling down incentive fees every year. He didn't have his picture in the Wall Street Journal. And he said, eight out of 10, Carolina wins. This could be one of the two. This is the way everybody should think about probabilities. And, you know, you meet the man on the street and you say, you know what? It's 80% probable Carolina's going to win. Does that tell you you know the outcome? And the answer is no, because Denver won. And so only a statement of 100% or zero is conclusive. And statements like that are rarely right. We must accept that our world is full of ambiguity and uncertainty, and we must invest with that in mind. I think that the reason some investors can't accept This level of ignorance or uncertainty is that A, some were taught that the method of investing is first you decide what the economy is going to do, then you decide what interest rates and commodities are going to do, then you decide what the market's going to do, then you decide which groups are going to do best. In other words, they were told that this is the method and they stick to it unquestioningly. I think that some people actually believe that they can forecast the future. Either they haven't examined their record for the most part, or They are subject to the human tendency to glory in their successes and forget their failures, or they know you can't predict the future, but they feel you have to make predictions in order to sound like an intelligent investor. The question of the distinction between inferences and predictions is very nuanced. A prediction is what you think will happen, an inference is what you believe the observables imply. For the future, you can draw inferences without becoming overconfident that you know what's going to happen. The willingness to make a prediction implies a belief that you know what's going to happen. And I think that it's just, as I say, a difference of nuance. Many people will make their inferences and turn them into a forecast, you know, but the linkage between today's circumstances and tomorrow's events is a loose one. And so I think that the person who uses inferences to make predictions will not hold them very strongly. That's the key. The Poor Man's Guide to Market Assessment is a tool, half serious and half jocular, to do what I described before, taking the temperature of the market. If you want to decide whether today is a propitious or a precarious time to make a new investment. In my opinion, since we don't know what the future holds, you want to judge the present. And to judge the present, there are two things to do. Number one is examine quantitative indicators, like P.E. ratios for real estate capitalization rates, for bonds, yields, and credit spreads, and the shape of the yield curve for buyouts, enterprise values. You want to look at how the market's being valued. Is the PE ratio high relative to history or low? And is the PE ratio on the investment I'm considering high relative to most of the others or low? This is very influential. It tells you something about how things are being valued. But the other thing you want to do, in my opinion, is you want to look at the qualitative factors, the behavioral factors. And I think the list, which has all the positives on one side and all the negatives on the other, and in that sense is extreme and overgeneralizing. I still think you want to look at these things and you want to figure out is the economy vibrant and the outlook positive and the lenders generous and interest rates low and the yield spreads narrow and investors optimistic and sanguine and eager to buy. You want to know when those are the conditions because certainly they are not the conditions that give rise to bargains. That doesn't mean that there can't be any bargains when these conditions are in force. But certainly, you would not tend to say, hey, this is a bargain-priced market. I got to wade in and buy as much as I can before I miss this opportunity. These are the circumstances that would make you leery. On the other hand, if you know that the economy has been sluggish and the outlook, everybody's negative on the outlook and the lenders are reticent and tight and capital is scarce and the investors are pessimistic and disinterested and, and distressed and running for the exits, everything else aside, you might say, hey, this is the kind of environment under which we can get bargains. I think understanding other people's errors and excesses, which are aggregated and summed up in market behavior, is one of the best ways we can deal with the uncertainty which is inherent in the future. I was a boy of uh, 15, so that means it was 60 years ago. They used to talk about using the enemy's strengths against him the enemy rushes at you you step aside and you let him run by or you use his momentum to turn it into a throw and this brings us back to mujo of course but we want to be a little bit counter and when the other person is attacking us with optimism we want to parry with cold-hearted realism and so forth but the thing is usually One of the things that happens in the market is when there's a challenge, people come up with solutions. Then opinion tends to coalesce behind those solutions. And when everybody has concluded that XYZ is the solution, it becomes the problem. Because when everybody concludes that XYZ is the solution, the capital flows to XYZ the managers have to put that capital to work especially if they want to raise another fund which causes strong buying in xyz which raises the price of xyz relative to abc and which makes xyz vulnerable and abc more attractive when something is anointed as the solution what I call the silver bullet. You know, when I was a kid, the Lone Ranger was on TV and he had a gun that fired silver bullets and he never missed. And there aren't many Lone Rangers around. Most of us miss a lot of the time. But when everybody concludes that something is the silver bullet, that is the solution that can't fail and has no risk, then they pile into it, which gives it risk and often leaves it open to failure. In the last almost 20 years since the tech bubble burst, Institutions have been using alternative investments more and more as the solution because they figure they can't get the returns they need in stocks and bonds, traditional stocks and bonds. In the first five years of that process, the answer would have been hedge funds. But in the last 15 years, in my opinion, so much capital flowed into hedge funds that they stopped outperforming. And their performance has been very lackluster over the last 15 years. And the hedge fund movement in general has been accorded less enthusiasm. And in the last 15 years, private equity has taken over. But I believe that too much money flowed into private equity for it to keep outperforming. The first quartile of private equity managers had a good return over time. And membership in that first quartile has been somewhat stable. But the average private equity fund has not added value for 12 years despite the wonders of being levered in a bullish market. So it tells you that whatever people conclude is the silver bullet has the tendency to not become the silver bullet. The investor, the non-realistic investor, always dreams of finding the silver bullet, always dreams of finding that investment that will make him a lot of money, but not put him at risk. And by definition, that can't exist. It can exist for many, and it can exist in size because the operations of the somewhat efficient market will drive those opportunities out of existence. The average investor, I believe, looks for the silver bullet, buys it, is disappointed, and then looks for the next one. I think it's more prudent you can look for the silver bullet, but when you buy it and you're disappointed a couple of times, you should say, I guess there's no such thing as a silver bullet. It's like, you know, when a teenager says, well, I guess there's no Santa Claus. My family's very generous, but I've come to accept that there is no Santa Claus. And I also think there's no silver bullet.
0: And now, It Is What It Is by Howard Marks. My first exposure to the phrase that serves as the title for this memo came in 1995, a few days before Oak Tree opened its doors. My partners and I racked our brains over whether we'd covered every base. We asked our attorney, Peter Ostroff of Sidley and Austin, if he thought we'd missed anything. Peter's answer was succinct and on target as usual. It is what it is. In the March 5th edition of the New York Times, William Sapphire devoted the Sunday Magazine's On Language column to It Is What It Is. He mentioned that the first use he could find had been in 1949 and that the phrase had been adopted from movie and song titles in the last few years. I was shocked when I checked Google and found 4.2 million references. According to Sapphire, there is no one definitive meaning for the phrase— It can serve as the equivalent of the politician's no comment. It can be used to express philosophical resignation over a disappointment. Or it can be a mild put-down, as if to say, that's all you can expect. Sapphire concluded his column with another possible meaning, Que sera, sera, what will be, will be, which was the title of a hit song by Doris Day when I was ten but that interpretation suggests a fatalism and inability to affect the outcome that I don't associate with the phrase. I took Peter's use of the phrase in 1995, and I'm using it in this memo to mean something very different, recognition and acceptance of today's givens, but not necessarily of the end result. What's past is past and can't be undone. It has led to the circumstances we now face— All we can do is recognize our circumstances for what they are and make the best decisions we can, given the givens. Roots in Philosophy In the mid-60s, Wharton students had to have a non-business minor, and I satisfied the requirement by taking five courses in Japanese studies. These surprised me by becoming the highlight of my college career and contributing to my investment philosophy in a major way. Among the values prized in early Japanese culture was mujo. Mujo was defined classically for me as recognition of the turning of the wheel of the law, implying acceptance of the inevitability of change, of rise and fall. This sense of accepting and going with the environment and the changes that take place there, rather than insisting that it stay the same and attempting to impose our will on it, was captured for me in a quotation from Lao Tzu. I found it in the March letter from Rimrock Capital, which Paul Westhead left Oak Tree in 2004 to head. To be strong, you have to be like water. If there are no obstacles, it flows. If there is an obstacle, it stops. If a dam is broken, then it flows further. If a vessel is square, then it has a square form. If a vessel is round, then it has a round form. Because it is so soft and flexible, it is the most necessary and the strongest thing. In other words, mujo means cycles will rise and fall, things will come and go, and our environment will change in ways beyond our control. Thus, we must recognize, accept, cope and respond. Isn't that the essence of investing? Coping with Cycles In the world of investing... As you've heard me say many times, nothing is as dependable as cycles. Fundamentals, psychology, prices and returns will rise and fall, presenting opportunities to make mistakes or to profit from the mistakes of others. They are the givens. We cannot know how far a trend will go, when it will turn, what will make it turn, or how far things will then go in the opposite direction. But I'm confident that every trend will stop sooner or later. Nothing goes on forever. Trees don't grow to the sky, and neither do many things go to zero and stay there. Success carries within itself the seeds of failure, and failure the seeds of success. So, what can we do about cycles? If we can't know in advance how and when the turns will occur, how can we cope? On this, I am dogmatic. We may never know where we're going, but we'd better have a good idea where we are. That is, even if we can't predict the timing and extent of cyclical fluctuations, it's essential that we strive to ascertain where we stand in cyclical terms and act accordingly. What can we know and how? Even without knowing where we're going and when, we can deduce lots of valuable information about our investment environment. First, where do we stand in the economic cycle? Is the economy several years into a recovery that may be due for a rest? Has it leveled out and begun to weaken? Or has it been weak enough long enough that we can reasonably expect recession to give way to recovery? Second, how have the markets been performing? Have they been weak for years? possibly pushing prices to bargain basement levels? Or have they been so strong that we should suspect, one, the positives have been fully discounted, two, several years of potential gains have been accelerated into the returns to date, and three, assets today are priced for perfection? Finally, and often most important, how are people around us behaving? If they're chastened by losses and afraid of the future, there's reason for us to be optimistic. If they're unworried and complacent, that's something we should worry about. In the words of my favorite Buffettism, the less prudence with which others conduct their affairs, the greater the prudence with which we should conduct our own affairs. Imagine we ran into a visitor from Mars who observed, I see your economy and markets have been doing well for years. Everyone's making a ton of money. No one's expressing worry or a desire to avoid risk. P.E. ratios, buyout prices, and private equity leverage ratios are all high. Stock buybacks and dividend recaps are adding to leverage and reducing creditworthiness. Conferences on hedge funds and private equity are sold out. Top-performing funds are closed to newcomers, and new ones start up every day, fully subscribed. The Greenwich Ferrari dealer has a waiting list a year long. Nothing in our favorite Martians statements sounds like a prediction. In fact, he hasn't said one word about the future. But there's a lot of helpful information there. My guess is valuable inferences could be made about what's likely to happen next. If he can see it, so should we. And having seen it, we should take appropriately cautious action. And the reverse can also be true. Although it's not something I dwell on most of the time, or at what I think is today's point in the cycle. If that Martian came down and saw nothing but weak recent returns, widespread disillusionment, disinterest in investing, and people waiting for the smoke to clear before they'll commit, we'd probably conclude it's time for us to step on the gas. What to do. There are few fields in which decisions as to strategies and tactics aren't influenced by what we see in the environment. Our pressure on the gas pedal varies depending on whether the road is empty or crowded. The golfer's choice of club depends on the wind. Our decision regarding outerwear certainly varies with the weather. Shouldn't our investment actions be equally affected by the investing climate? Most people strive to adjust their portfolios based on what they think lies ahead. At the same time, however, most people would admit forward visibility just isn't that great. That's why I make the case for responding to the current realities and their implications, as opposed to expecting the future to be made clear. In November 2004, I wrote a memo entitled, Risk and Return Today. Its thesis was that in most asset classes, prospective returns were low and risk premiums were skinny. On that basis, I urged investors to act accordingly, hold reasonable expectations, and especially, decline to stretch for higher returns by taking on more risk. The conclusions are just as clear today. When high returns are not in prospect, we shouldn't invest as if they are. When safe investments appear unlikely to provide the returns we need, we shouldn't rush to riskier investments to get them. This is especially true when the reward for taking incremental risk is skimpy. It's as simple as that. We can't expect high returns when the market doesn't offer them. Prices won't fall to levels from which high returns can be expected if most investors are willing to settle for less. To quote Peter Bernstein, The market's not a very accommodating machine. It won't provide high returns just because you need them. My bottom line, as they might say in the self-help books, listen to your inner Martian. What's going on usually isn't that big a mystery. An overheated environment doesn't mean the market's going down tomorrow, just as an excess of risk aversion doesn't signal it's the absolute bottom but the circumstances should inform our behavior. Simply observing what's going on around you and acting accordingly should improve your investment results. And the distinctions needn't be cut too fine. There can be lots of room for argument between undervalued and fairly valued, or between fairly valued and overvalued. That's where most of the uncertainty lies. But it's unlikely that disciplined investors will find it hard to choose between overvalued and undervalued. In my opinion, if you're racking your brain trying to figure out whether something's overvalued or fairly valued, that is, whether you should sell or continue to hold, it's usually pretty clear that it's not a buy. What is going on around us today? No one I know thinks investors today are acting out of an excess of caution. And I agree. Investors have forgotten the losses in stocks, corporate bonds, and venture capital earlier this decade, and consider this a low-risk world. Or at least one where risk is clearly worth taking. Mark Cutis of Shinsei Bank sent me his memo entitled, Market of No Fear. I think that's an apt description. There's no reason to think today's environment implies high future returns. Whether it's high P.E. ratios, high transaction multiples in buyouts, low bond yields or low capitalization rates on real estate, and certainly all of these are interrelated, few markets appear to offer bargains. People are reporting big gains from private equity and real estate assets they bought cheap in the past, levered up in accommodating capital markets, and sold at very high prices. Read low prospective returns. But fewer people can claim to be buying in on the cheap today. A great deal of what's happening is related to a glut of capital for investment in non-mainstream asset classes. With no one interested in buying more high-grade bonds at yields near 5% or U.S. stocks with consensus-expected returns of 5 to 7% or so, capital is bypassing those big markets, or perhaps exiting them, and flocking to the smaller alternative markets, raising prices. I understand why people who need 8% or more are looking there for help, but that doesn't do much for the likelihood they'll get what they're after. More on this later. The skinniness of today's risk premiums can be observed most clearly in the high-yield bond market, where prospective returns can be calculated with precision and yield spreads are in the vicinity of historic lows and in certain real estate markets where actual cash returns are similarly low. But the difficulty of quantifying prospective returns in public and private equity doesn't mean the offerings there are any less paltry. And, as Alan Greenspan said, history has not dealt kindly with the aftermath of protracted periods of low-risk premiums. This is a time for caution, not aggressiveness, for reaping more than sowing. I said it 16 and 34 months ago, and returns in many U.S. markets have been paltry since. Some alternative investment returns have been quite good— But high realized returns must never be confused with great opportunities to invest more. High past returns don't imply high future returns. More likely, they've borrowed from the future. The Poor Man's Guide to Market Assessment Here's a simple exercise. I'm about to list a number of market characteristics. For each pair, make a mental note of which you think is most descriptive of today. And if you find that you choose the first of each pair, as I do, hold on to your wallet. Economy. Vibrant or sluggish. Outlook. Positive or negative. Lenders. Eager or reticent. Capital markets. Loose or tight. Capital. Plentiful or scarce. Terms. Easy or restrictive. Interest rates. Low or high. Spreads, narrow or wide Investors, optimistic or pessimistic Sanguine or distressed, eager to buy or uninterested in buying Asset owners, happy to hold or rushing for the exits Sellers, few or many Markets, crowded or starved for attention Funds, hard to gain entry or open to anyone New ones daily, or only the best can raise money. GPs hold the cards on terms, or LPs have bargaining power. Recent performance, strong or weak. Asset prices, high or low. Prospective returns, low or high. Risk, high or low. Popular qualities, aggressiveness, or caution and discipline. Broad reach, or selectivity, the right qualities, caution and discipline or aggressiveness, selectivity or broad reach, available mistakes, buying too much or buying too little, paying up or walking away, taking too much risk or taking too little risk, An inefficient market in investment advice. Bruce Karsh and I recently had an opportunity to sit down to lunch with Charlie Munger. As usual, our conversation was most enjoyable, straying over a large number of topics. I think a few of them, plus some comments from Warren Buffett's latest annual report, can be woven into something of relevance to this memo and of interest to you. Bruce started off by observing that with practically everyone able to start up a billion-dollar hedge fund, and with the leading private equity managers able to raise funds of 10 to $15 billion, jobs in those fields are in great demand as the way to get rich quick. It occurred to me that if large numbers of people are convinced that a given field is sure to give them instant wealth, something must be wrong. That's a bubble expectation. Getting rich if it can be accomplished at all, is supposed to come from some combination of proven skill, hard work, risk-bearing, and luck. No one should be able to count on it, and especially not in the short run. And given the operation of market forces, such an opportunity shouldn't last long. Then I remembered that for decades, I've argued that exceptional risk-adjusted returns can only be achieved in inefficient markets. And even then, not all the time, or by everyone. And by inefficient markets, I've always meant markets where mistakes are being made. So, if large numbers of alternative investment managers and would-be managers are planning on getting rich quick, the investment management market must be inefficient. They and or someone else must be making a mistake. Who else could it be? Maybe it's their clients. Today, as everyone knows, funds can be raised easily and at sizes no one imagined just three years ago. But assets are no longer as cheap as they used to be. Interest rates are no longer as low, and the economic recovery isn't as young. I recently heard a speech in which a top buyout manager said his fund's goal, per my memory, is to buy companies at fair prices and make them worth more. In the past, he might have said they tried to buy companies cheap. On the plus side of the ledger for private equity, managers think more like owners than do many public company boards, are substantially incentivized to see the fund's assets appreciate and have the potential to improve their previously undermanaged companies. On the negative side, however, the three of us noted that clients are currently entrusting record amounts of money to these managers, along with management fees big enough to allow the managers to get rich without making successful investments as well as a share in transaction fees that have the potential to put the interests of fund managers and their clients in conflict. I believe the investors in these funds feel they'll be happy if they can earn net returns in the very low double digits. The modest nature of their aspirations stems from the juxtaposition of A, the perceived inadequacy, mentioned earlier, of the prospective returns on mainstream stocks and bonds. B, the large sums some institutions have to invest, and C, the 8% or better returns that pension funds and endowments must achieve if they are to continue business as usual. This combination makes it imperative that they commit to alternative investments and hedge funds and thus tilts the balance of bargaining power over fees to the fund managers. This, in turn, decreases the likelihood that terms will be designed to maximize the client's interests. It also can give the managers amounts of capital that pose a problem. In his letter discussing Berkshire Hathaway's 2005 performance, Warren Buffett tells the priceless story of the Gottrocks family, which owns all the corporations in America and earns all the profits. Over time, individual family members are approached by broker helpers, manager helpers, and consultant helpers who promise to help them make money for a fee by buying certain pieces of the empire from their relatives and selling them others. Eventually, they also hook up with hyper helpers, wearing uniforms saying private equity and hedge fund, who levy success fees on top of their other charges. It's clear that the collective efforts of all the helpers in shuffling assets among GotRocks family members are unlikely to increase the family's overall wealth, just as is true when companies are sold from one private equity fund to another. At the same time, whether they're successful or not, the costs involved in trying will cause a substantial transfer of wealth from the GotRocks to their helpers. But that's the way it is. In April 1998, I observed in Views on Alternative Investments that some good-performing managers might choose to appropriate for themselves a bigger portion of their fund's superior returns. This is natural and happens in all businesses where the product is in strong demand. But that doesn't mean buyers should ignore it when it occurs. I'm not saying alternative investments and hedge funds won't provide the returns clients need or that people shouldn't invest in them. But realistically, assessing the demand for these funds, the amounts of money going into them, the market conditions for the underlying asset classes, and the deals the managers are able to cut for themselves might cause would-be investors to conclude the silver bullet still hasn't been invented. Participate in alternative investments if you want. In fact, Oaktree hopes you'll keep doing so. But do it with your eyes open. Charlie ended the lunch by urging us to create reasonable expectations among our clients and treat them well. We promised to try. None of us can individually influence economic or market conditions. Neither, I think, can we accurately see what lies ahead. But it's possible to derive inferences from the recent past and the present that improve our judgments and actions regarding the future. It's simply essential that we be aware of what's going on around us. After all, who can argue with the statement, it is what it is? Facing up to reality is what Warren Buffett's doing when he says, we used to find it easy to buy dollars for 50 cents. Today, we're trying hard to find dollars we can buy for 80 cents. He also told me he has an 800 number for anyone who knows where 80 cent dollars can be found. Recognizing and accepting these things, when they're true, isn't pleasant, but there is no prudent alternative. Oaktree tries hard to take note to prevailing market conditions, communicate what's going on, and behave as contrarians. We try to raise bigger funds and buy more aggressively when we think others are leaving bargains on the table, and do the opposite when they're not. It doesn't always work, but it usually beats the alternative. March 27th, 2006. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Legal information and disclosures. This memorandum expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is the potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This memorandum is being made available for educational purposes only. And should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performance is based on or derived from information provided by independent third party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This memorandum, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oaktree. Audiation